You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge in their complete lineup of knives and game processing kits. These guys right now are doing an absolutely huge giveaway where you could win an elk hunt. And not just any elk hunt. We're talking about a seven or eight mile horseback ride into the backcountry. We're talking a one-on-one guided hunt. You're going to be sleeping in a wall tent, and you're going to be doing that for five days with the founder and CEO of Outdoor Edge, David Block. Now, if you've never been on an elk hunt before, I'm telling you right now, go sign up for this because if you ever hear a elk bugle, whether it's at 400 yards or it's at 40 yards, it is a life-changing experience. So here's how you enter. Go to OutdoorEdge.com. There's going to be a big banner for it somewhere on their homepage. All you have to do is click on that. Go fill out some information. I think your name, your email address, maybe some other stuff. And that's all you have to do. That's how you are entered. They're going to be picking a winner oh, a ways from now. So you have plenty of time to enter. Go visit OutdoorEdge.com. Sign up today. And if you decide to purchase any products from the website, Enter the discount code NATION30. That's the word NATION with the number 30 after that. No spaces. NATION30. And you will receive 30% off your purchase. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 60, Specialization is Only for Insects. Nick is joined by former professional chef Shane Ball. Shane left the fast-paced, intense world of high-end culinary and started the Instagram handle, The Couch Cook. The guys cover a whole host of topics, from hunting opportunities in Alberta, how it's both important to get a high-dollar knife and have timely maintenance on your most-used cutlery, to why hunters and cooks we need not be specialized, but expand our utilization and preparation to take our wild game to the next level. In addition, Shane hits us with some mind-blowing tips in the kitchen. So get those notepads ready. Here we go.
Well, hey, folks, beautiful night tonight here in, in Michigan. It's actually pretty mild as far as temperature goes, but there's an eerie stillness because it is also the election day, and we're all on the edge of our seats right now, especially this year. Uh, there's this just uneasiness around. In fact, I've cracked myself a beer here just to kind of let loose a little bit and get some of the tension off. Uh, I did my due diligence, though, this afternoon and uh, went off and put my vote, cast it off to uh, to put my voice out there. And now we just have to wait and see what's going to happen. Our guest tonight happens to be somebody that gets to watch what's going on from afar. He's not even from this country, and I'm sure he's sitting back on his couch with a big bowl of popcorn. Folks, Shane Ball from the handle on Instagram, Couch Cook is uh, joining us tonight. Also cooking, are you just watching to see what's going on down south here, Shane? That's exactly what I'm doing. I, I'm more excited about this watching this election than I am uh, NBA finals or anything like that. <laughs> that that takes sure. the cake right there. Yeah, it beats World Series. It beats uh, oh. you know the Super Bowl. This is just going to be oh. something crazy. It's, I just can't wait. I'm um, nervous though. I don't know why. I, I'm I've got crazy butterflies still thinking thinking about what could happen and all that. So maybe that's the appeal. Gotcha. Is is American politics have any like? Do you feel any of the effects of of what goes on down here? I mean, I know. I mean, we we are neighbors. We share that northern border. And as much as there's a lot difference between our two countries, there also is a lot similar. Do you guys feel what's going on? Are you guys also nervous to say, like, as far as, man, what effect is this going to have on your nation as well? Oh, entirely. Uh, where where I am located, uh, specifically in Alberta, at uh, Alberta in Canada, is very energy dependent. We're a massive energy producer. So a lot of um, how our economy and market does is driven by what's going on in the U.S. politically and economically as well. So uh, we feel it tremendously here in Alberta. And I don't know about other parts of Canada. You know, some parts of Canada are far removed from the west part of Canada where I'm from. Uh, so I don't know how they feel it like we do. But because of how uh, market-driven we are, we feel what goes on down south. Gotcha, gotcha. Being that big supplier, it really does, you know, if they're if we're going to go a, away from those fossil fuels, well, that's going to be a huge downer for Alberta. But if we continue to use those fossil fuels, then that's going to help fuel you guys as far as an industry goes. That oh, is absolutely. crazy to think about that, you know, somebody else's decisions are going to end up affecting you guys. Oh, it's crazy. It is crazy. Very, very, very much so. So let's put that aside. I I have really tried to disengage as much from politics as, as much as possible. I wanted to be informed. I wanted to know where I was going to stand on both proposals and who I would like to have. And at the end of the day, be able to say, hey, here's my vote. And the sun is going to rise tomorrow. As much as I want to mm -hmm. say, like, the world's going to end because whoever I picked is not in there or the person that I did pick is in there, like, despite whatever happens the sun will rise tomorrow and we will all go to work despite whatever the outcome is. So 
that's one thing that I'm leading on is I'm just going to kind of ignore it and kind of focus on something that I really like here. And that's why I have you on tonight. Uh, Couch Cook is your Instagram handle. And Mm -hmm. it's not like immediately when I thought about it, it was like it's not the Monday morning quarterback where you then see something else that somebody did. Oh, should have done that or no, should have done this. But you take a completely different approach to Couch Cook. Explain explain your handle a little bit. Okay, so uh, the handle uh, comes from the, kind of a funny funny story. I was watching uh, a hockey game on TV, and I was losing it because my, our team, the Calgary Flames, weren't doing so well, and I was kind of yelling and screaming at the TV, which uh, some people have the tendency to do when their team isn't doing well. And my wife uh, kind of looked at me and said, oh, you sound like an armchair coach or you sound like a couch coach or something like she said something along those lines. And then right after the hockey game came on, there was a cooking show, like a top chef style show. It was a cooking contest kind of show. And uh, I started bashing the cooks. I said, why is he doing this? Why is she doing that? And then I said, now I sound like a couch cook. (laughs) And so that's kind of how the couch cook handle the name came up with it. But how I came up with that name. And then I realized it actually kind of applies in many different ways. A lot of people draw inspiration from watching cooking shows or reading cooking books or uh, recipes and, you know, browsing Instagram on the couch, uh, looking at food pictures or what posts or anything like that, reading articles. And so I kind of thought, Hey, actually that's kind of got a cool ring to it. It works. And I, I was just starting to cook, a lot again in my own household and so I thought hey maybe I'll just make this Instagram page and uh, post my food and whatever I find related kind of funny to it and uh, I just started it with no intentions and it's kind of where it's gone today so that's the beginning of it that's really cool it's really cool Um, Mm -hmm. because your your old profession is was being a professional chef that was what you you had gone to you aspired to do you went through uh culinary school tell us a little bit about your training um prior to actually getting into a restaurant or getting into a kitchen uh where were you professionally trained at so i actually went an unconventional route (laughs) i when i was younger i was 14 years old i just hated school so much uh and i was homeschooled so I begged my parents that they would allow me to get a job and they eventually let me and I ended up getting a job in downtown Calgary as a dishwasher. So I started, this is a traditional chef story, by the way. It always starts in the dish pit (laughs) (laughs) and goes from there. Nobody aspires to be a chef. (laughs) But back then there was, you know, it wasn't glamorous, right? So it wasn't, you know, nowadays it's with cooking shows and the glamour behind it people have more of a desire uh, or a calling to go into the profession. Whereas when I started 16, 17 years ago, it was more by accident. So I started washing uh, dishes in a restaurant when I was 14 years old. I I hated washing dishes or I didn't hate it so much, but I was just intrigued by the, the guys cooking on the line, you know, the camaraderie that they had all close together, those cooks, you know, yelling and shouting orders back and forth with each other. And it kind of drew me in. It was kind of like a sports team, how I looked at them 
operate and function. And I was, I was a sport. Uh, I love sports as a kid. So that kind of camaraderie, I wanted to be part of it. So I would actually end up staying um, after my shifts for free as a dishwasher. I would stay for free and teach myself or, or just jump on the line with the other cooks and help them for free for another six, seven, sometimes eight hours. And, uh, and then I realized, well, this is something that I can do. So I got my grade 10 education. I finished that up. I, after I got grade 10 education, I enrolled into the apprenticeship because that was the uh, bare minimum that you need to get into the apprenticeship. And I just went straight, straight into it from there. I got a good job at, uh, uh, at the Hyatt Regency. So Hyatt Regency hotels, uh, here in Calgary and they're internationally around the world. And I was the youngest employee ever in the Hyatt history. And I just kind of started there and finished my apprenticeship through them and with them and went to culinary school. I graduated culinary school when I was, uh, well, I think I just turned 19 when I finished culinary school. And then from there, uh, I moved to Europe where I would say, I would say I was kind of trained in, in a few different places. I learned a lot through my apprenticeship in the Hyatt. I've learned more through um, my workplace experience than I ever did in culinary school. Um, but I would give a lot of credit to the Hyatt because of the amount of uh, options they have to learn from, such as like the banquet kitchen, they have a butcher, uh, a, a butchering station, uh, they have a pastry station and all these different facets that gave me a lot of diversity at a very young age. And uh, from there, after culinary school, I went to Europe and I worked in London, England for a while. And then I worked for uh, Gordon Ramsay there in one of his restaurants. And um, I would say I got a lot of education and training there. Uh, I worked my way up into the ranks a little bit there and then moved uh, back to Canada took a job here and then I kind of took more um, senior roles in the kitchen for a couple more years before I ultimately ended up leaving the industry. Gotcha. Wow. What an adventure to go from <laughs> dishwasher to I'm just going to work for free to basically yep. having Gordon Ramsay yell at you. Did did he yell at yep. you? Did you have a lot of cursing? Uh, in your... <laughs> no, not him directly, but that, that culture is very, uh, that that's common. I mean, the Gordon Ramsay era was it wasn't uh, like just a pure personification of him. It was a personification of the whole, you know, the Hell's Kitchen was the whole, a whole as the industry as a whole. So I actually had chefs here in Calgary way before I even worked for him at my first job, <laughs> my second job that would uh, that would be just as intense as him. And when I got to London and started working for him, he wasn't there as frequent as, as well. I mean, he was, he was there semi-frequently, but his head chefs, his executive chefs and sous chefs. Yeah. They yell at you. It's a yell. It, you get yelled at for 18 hours a day, every day. <laughs> we're, we're to the point you don't even really take it serious. Sometimes you're just like, Oh, let's get yelled at. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like noise <laughs> in the background at that point. That's it. That's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> I've because yeah. I've heard kind of like a, a sh or excuse me like a French style kitchen where it's really like a boot camp that young young cooks yeah. would come in and it's like if you mess something up like you'd get a ladle to the back of the head or like 
you know, what you were working on would just get tossed to the floor, start over again, or you were on mise en place for the next day and a half that, you know, you you were going to pay for whatever mistakes you made, but at the same time, you know, you, you come out of that fire much more refined, you know, that's, it's militant at that point. And I can see how, especially in a service where, you know, you're providing for a customer that is, that's out there waiting for their meal. This has got to happen now. Then this has got to happen. Right. I mean, that's exactly it. Uh, the, the, the chef, the, the chef mindset is very, very military militant. It's, it's very regimented and there's a lot on the line. I mean, in the end of the day, you're just making food, but as a chef, that's all you have, right? You're not doing that industry because uh, you're making so much money, quite opposite. You're making no money. You're not doing that industry because uh, you get all the free time in the world, quite opposite. You get zero free time and you get no holidays. You know, you're not with your family on Christmas and all these things, generally speaking, you're doing it because you love food and you're, your food is your reputation. And so when you have cooks that in your kitchen that may not take it serious or don't see the implications of, of having angry customers or uh, having food sent back because they weren't happy, uh, it's frustrating. It could be very frustrating for those chefs. So uh, there's <laughs> when, when you're, when, when the only thing that you're working for is your own reputation and it's not getting respected in the way that you, that's all you ask for is that you get that ultimate respect and it's not being reciprocated or, or, or treated like that. Then you run, you're running around on, uh, on thin ice. (laughs) So ultimately just being as intense as that market is, or that, that field is, is that what led you to then say, Hey, I've done my time. I need to move on. Or were there other things? Because you're you're currently not in a kitchen right now, correct? No, no, I'm no. I haven't been in a kitchen. Uh, I haven't worked steady in a kitchen since 2013. So it's been about seven years. I do help a friend. He's got a pretty high end catering company, and every Christmas season rolls around, he needs an extra hand, and so I'll, I'll pop in just to keep keep the chops wet and help them out and, and just have a little fun. But I almost do it just voluntarily, like just for fun. Um, but no, it, it has, that actually has nothing to do with why I uh, ended up leaving the industry. I'd say a lot, the main reason I, I've asked myself this question millions of times, why I left it. And I think I, now that I'm older and I understand things a little bit better and, you know, you see those things through a different lens i think i could just chalk it up to me being immature uh and that's really all it was i i had peaked at a very young age you know i had accomplished so many things i traveled the world i had eaten at some of the best restaurants cooked in some of the best restaurants i and i've seen a variety of all these things and i came back to canada and i felt i felt like when i was working here that what i what I had uh, all the years of work that I'd gone through and the food that I started to make here for people, I, I couldn't find cooks that were as excited about it as I was or front end staff that was super excited about sharing the same enthusiasm with the level and the style of food that I wanted to do. And then same with the, the customer base. I live in a very, um, in a very uh, meat and potato city. 
you know, it's just the, it's just the city that I'm from and I love it now. But when I was younger, I wasn't really accommodating to that. I was hoping they, they would accommodate to what I like as a chef. And it just kind of frustrated me. Everything just started frustrating me. And then I started feeling sorry for myself and asking, oh, why did I waste 10 years of my life, of my youth and sacrifice my life for this? And I started playing myself the violin and I ended up just quitting. Uh, and then I just ran into different opportunities and it just pulled me further away. And I don't regret ever leaving it. I'm extremely happy I did, as a matter of fact, but I definitely miss a lot about it um but no it wasn't anything to do with the intensity and the the regiment if anything what i miss it is that that's what i miss and that's why i have other hobbies nowadays that replace that uh, discipline for me well good deal i know just finding your handle as much as it's not regimented it's actually social media um you've kind of turned that your handle is more even a tool, I would say, at least from my eyes, because going through each of the posts, it's not just, hey, look at this, isn't this pretty? But you've got a piece or an explanation on what you're doing, why you're doing it, um, whether it's, you know, this this pairing or whether it's uh, here, here's how to cut up uh, an onion with the right grip. You know, I was just looking at that one and going from the the correct way to hold a chef's knife to making a claw on the other side. Uh, finding out that technique for myself, I have saved a lot of band-aids in being <laughs> able to like efficiently go through an onion with pretty good speed, nowhere near where you're at. But at the same time, I feel accomplished. Like, yeah, I got that onion cut up and there's no blood <laughs> on the cutting board. <laughs> Feels good, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> Explain a little bit of your technique because, you know, when people when people grab a knife, uh, especially down here, I would say sportsmen's alike, you know, we want we want a good firm grip on that knife. You know, we've got yeah. five digits wrapped around the handle and we've got our thumb across the top of it, almost more of we're we're looking to stab something rather than to get a chop. Uh Explain a little bit of the technique on your grip, both with the knife and on the vegetable or meat that you're using. It's actually funny. I'm literally thinking about today. I was just thinking about how I could create a video that can explain uh, a great way to do this, to demonstrate this, but I'll explain it the best way I can. Um, so there's a couple things that matter with, with the knife. And I always tell people with knife, general knife skills uh, that a sharp knife is a good knife, number one. And before you even worry about how you're holding a knife, you got to make sure it's sharp. <laughs> that is very important. I've cut more fingers with dull knives or using the wrong knife for the wrong job. Uh, using, For an example, I took my thumb off with a bread knife when I was slicing portobello mushrooms. <laughs> so, oh. so always use the right knife for the right job. But with general uh, knife handling, what I say is you got to treat that knife that's in your hand as an extension of your hand. You literally have to create a mind to knife connection so that you're always aware of where that knife is and where it's pointing. And then uh, what I like to do when I'm generally holding the knife is I pinch the bottom of the blade, or not the bottom, not where the edge is of the blade, but the top part of the blade with my index finger and my thumb. And I let the handle just kind of ride, like just, 
relax in the palm of my hand and the grip is actually held on the top of the blade there where right at the bottom at the top of the handle the bottom of the blade i'm just pinching if you look at my videos or if you ever see me holding a knife i'm just pinching that and then my index finger and my thumb are kind of controlling the motion and the movement but i'm never gripping the handle um if you're gripping the handle too much and there's no blade stability uh if you're cutting something let's say like an onion and you know an onion can have a uh a skin layer the membrane around it that can be somewhat slippery and you go and you chop through it and you hit that membrane and you're not you know, there's no blade stability it could easily ricochet to the left or to the right and take the finger off on your other hand very easily just by deflection that's also why a sharp knife is very important so that you don't have those uh ricochets and and your knife your blade kicking out on you when there's a little bit of a uh tougher texture object that your your blade connects with and then with your other hand uh for most people it's their left hand for me it's my right hand uh, the claw is the typical chopping and dicing uh, hand position. It's where you tuck your thumb as if you're making a fist to punch someone, <laughs> but not closing your hand over your thumb, but just having your thumb tucked in behind your four other primary fingers and using those four fingers as a guide for your blade. That's all it is. And you got to have the confidence and trust that those fingers are your guide and that you won't chop yourself. But again, that's why a sharp blade is important. So that way when you top a, when you chop the top of a bell pepper, it doesn't deflect and then take your fingers off. If it's nice and sharp, it could cut clean through. And uh, so those are my, those are the two, three biggest tips. I would say sharp knife, right knife for the right job and and blade stability. Those are the three things that you need to, uh, to use. To, to be aware of. So that chop that you're going down, the motion, that's actually controlled by the thumb and the forefinger that you've had the grip on top. Are those the two that you're you're basically pushing through uh, the vegetable at that point, whether it be like a carrot or an onion? Like that's where the, what I would want, well, I guess what I want to say, that's where the weight is going to be provided yeah. as you bring that down? Yeah, so the there's a few different ways different different kind of categories of of textures right so a carrot is a lot firmer than say an onion so a carrot you would rest the tip of the knife onto the board and kind of come with the weight the heel of the knife the heel of the knife uh coming straight down through and then kind of rocking it back up uh so if you have your knife down on your board you come straight through with the heel of the knife and you bring that heel back up and you just rock through with a with an onion or a mushroom for example when you're slicing something really fast i do i start at the top of the vegetable or whatever it is it's, it's a softer texture so it's easier to kind of slice through what i do is i'll start at the heel of the knife and i'll actually pull the blade through ending with the tip of the knife. That's the general goal. So I pull that knife through. Like when you see me slicing really fast, slicing those onions really fast, I'm bringing that heel towards my body. And I'm just super fast, just bringing it in nice and tight and coming back up and over. Like 
heal up, heal up, heal up and down. And really don't want to use too much of your own uh, strength or like force the weight through. If you have to actually force weight through vegetables, you're probably, your knife is not sharp enough. So (laughs) like I said, if you just have a sharp knife, it'll it'll save you a lot of grief. Good deal. Yeah. That, that sharp knife aspect that you were just talking about. Um, what do you use to sharpen your knives? Do you use a service or do you have a stone that you use? Do you have a jig? What's your setup for sharpening your home knives? I use that all three of those. <laughs> so, so on the general day to day, like people have a impression that your knife is uh, it, you, when you're just using a honing blade, a honing steel, that that's sharpening your knife. It's not all that, that, that stainless steel or that ceramic steel that you see chefs go on it's just it's just bringing the edge back so you got to imagine that you're as you're using your blade that there are these tiny teeth um on that blade that start to cross over like an x down down the edge line and every time you bring it on that honing steel it straightens out that those teeth and brings it back to a straight edge and so I'll use that honing steel every time I, before I even slice anything every day, right before I uh, get going, I just run it three times on each edge of the steel and then I get to work. And then every time I feel it just kind of starting to lose a bit of an edge, I just run it three times again on each side. I never think about, I and I don't always count either. I just kind of quickly one, two, three, sometimes four, sometimes two times each side. And that's just daily maintenance. But this current chef knife that I'm using, uh, I've had it for two and a half years, and I've never had to take it to a stone or get it, uh, like bring it in for sharpening. It's always hold it, held, held its edge. So there's another tip. A good quality knife will also uh, save people a lot of time. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we're gonna um, we're gonna jump into that. Um, Back to that stealing too. Like, I I grew up in the meat industry here in the United States. Uh, we have a family farm here, and I've worked a lot with with turkeys specifically. We're a, yeah. we're a turkey farm, so using like a boning knife, and just like what you were saying, is like I'm not when I and I'm using the steel because I'm using that blade all day or like for several hours in a row, mm-hmm. either taking a neck off or I'm taking a wing off or, you know, deep, you know, de-meating a bird as much as you're, you know, that the steel of that knife is stronger and harder than bone. It's still going to take a toll on that because you're doing so many cuts in a row that it's amazing how just having that steel and working that steel can preserve that edge that you put on. You just said like with your high quality knife, you haven't had to take it in, but that's to say like you haven't, like not done anything you don't just throw it back in the drawer and then pull it out again no it's daily maintenance or each time you're using it there's maintenance with it yeah and and exactly and and i'm not i use my knife frequently very very frequent a thousand times more than the average knife gets used in a house for sure and i still am able to preserve that edge so it's just good maintenance right just keep the blade clean you you clean it the right way with some just some soapy water. Don't run it in your dishwasher where there's chemicals and things like that that can deteriorate the quality of that blade. Just hot soapy water. Use a so if you got a harder steel knife, for example, like a Wurstroff or a Henkel, you got to use a, a maybe a diamond edge steel blade, um, honing steel, 
Uh, and if you're using something kind of mid-grade um, for for steel uh, hardness, like a Victoria Knox, you could use just a stainless steel honing rod. But if you're using these Japanese knives, they're quite a bit softer. So I use a ceramic steel on those ones. So you got to use the right tool for the job, just like anything. A mechanic, uh, I'm not mechanically inclined, but I'm sure that applies in that field. I'm sure in the electrical field, they got the same analogy. So right tool for the right job. Exactly. And I'm actually going to use that analogy here in a second. I need to make a note because I've got something I want to talk to you on that too. But I do want to shift over to like, all right, we, we talked about cutting vegetables now, but I mean, we're hunters, we're anglers. We're, we're yeah. going to be cutting meat at this point. Uh, you're not using your chef's knife to cut steaks or take things off bones. What's your go-to boning knife? What are you, what are you currently using right now? So I, what is it called? I forget what it's the brand name. It's an expensive <laughs> Japanese boning knife. That's all I, <laughs> that's all I can tell you. <laughs> uh, it's called a Kasumi, um, Kasumi Japanese boning knife. And, the reason why I bought this one is I actually bought this one quite recently uh, with the intention for, you know, um, deboning my elk and deer and all that kind of stuff. And also being able to fillet fish. And I just, I have three primary knives that I use. And then I have a bunch of other knives that are just kind of like, if I need it for that job, they're, they're there. But that one um, is just, a, it's got good, uh, steel flexibility, like it's it could get in and around those those bones, and it could also fillet if I needed to. So it's just a good versatile knife. Now that I say that with if if people are asking, I say that with a little bit of caution because I wouldn't want a new person to use a uh, flexible knife like this, a, a person that's just developing knife skills, because that blade is a lot less forgiving. And, um, and so I would kind of, I would recommend them to go to something like a Victoria Knox boning steel and then get a fillet knife again, right tool for the right job. But for myself, uh, I like using something that's very versatile. It's just less cupboard space, just less, less stuff laying around for me. So I have this good versatile, um, boning knife, a Kasumi it's called. And it's a good thing people should do is go to their local knife shop, go to a place that's specializes with knives these guys are professionals at what they do and what their knife guys are ridiculous they're the most passionate people about the weirdest thing <laughs> on the planet but they're going to point you in the right direction if you kind of tell them your skill level what your ability you can hold a few different knives and get get comfortable with it so for me to tell someone something so general it's like what car should i drive it, it's the same kind of comparison so Try a couple things out. Go go check a few things out, uh, especially if this is something that you really want to take serious and you plan on breaking down a few deer a year or a moose or elk, uh, and and this is something that you really want to do. You got to get comfortable with what you're going to work with. So that's my advice on that. Good deal. Yeah, I was going along with that same analogy you were saying that earlier, like right right tool for the right job, and. Mm -hmm. In the sportsman's world, like we do, we got we got a couple deer. We're not in the butcherman's world, or we're not in the slaughterman's world, where, it, or even in the the professional kitchen, where we're going to be using those knives over and over and over again. In every shop across America, there is a craftsman socket set of tools. Are they the most incredible 
cast made tools out there? No, but they've got a lifetime warranty. Yeah. You snap one, shoot, go back. They give you another one. You get back to work. You can fix anything from, you know, your car to anything around the house with that. It it can do the job. Yeah. Now you get to one of the mechanics that his job depends upon him and his tools. You know, he's going to jump up to the snap-ons where now he's got a refined tool, a specific tool for the job. And that's where you're saying that, you know, you got these high-quality Japanese knives that, oh, they just look beautiful. And for someone who's upping their game, taking a look at some of these knives, knowing you're going to drop some coin on it, but at that point, once you've put the knife, once you've put the work into having the knife skills, you'll know the difference between the two and how much easier it is. I'd even equate it to, like, you know, you get a, I've got a pretty much entry-level bow that I'm using, and does it work? Heck yeah. Are there upgrades that I can make to it? Yes, and I have. And once I go to, like, a flagship bow eventually, or if I even do, I make that jump to a flagship-level bow. Now that I have the practice, I'm going to know the difference between the two, whereas you hand that flagship to somebody out of the gate, they're going to be there's their skill set isn't going to already be developed. So they won't know right. the difference that they have there. Oh, exactly. A hundred percent. That's exactly the, the best parallel to draw here with, with the knives. Exactly. Cause yeah, I was, I've been looking around at, at different knives. And in fact, my, my two main knives that I have in my kitchen, unfortunately they go through the dishwasher because my wife is, yeah. she, she's all about efficiency. And if that knife is dirty, well, I don't have the time to just to wipe it down with soap and water. And she got to it before I did. So I'll open up the dishwasher and I'll see that sucker laying right there. And I'm like, ah, darn it. And I guess I didn't realize, too, that it, the chemical could affect the, the blade at that point. Granted, these these two knives, the one I actually got at a thrift store for five bucks. And it's a uh, it doesn't have a name on it, but it's an it's like a. Oh, it's probably an eight-inch butcher's knife that I end up using. I yeah. like the bull nose, um, just because I got a I got oh, a yeah. good rock. So when I'm doing, I do a lot of peppers, a lot of bell peppers for my kids. Like it's just a nice rocker that goes on through yeah. the bell pepper. And then the other chef knife came with like a carving set that we got for Christmas one year, just kind of like laid out there. So they're total off-brand name, and you know the quality isn't there but at the same time they work and yeah. i do have uh a stone I've actually it's a super old oil stone uh from the turkey farm i tell you i am i'm as <laughs> rudimentary as it gets in my setup <laughs> but it's one of those things like i think if i were to make that step up to like a japanese knife i think i'm going to know the difference just because I've put the work into, you know, I see the the pinch on the top, and so I'm working on making sure that I'm uh, making that the fulcrum and having the handle be more the control aspect as far as the pitch, yeah. and then using the guide on my fingers. Like, at some point, and when I do make that jump to a more specialized knife, I think that's when I'm going to finally see where my skill work has, has developed. So, no, I really yeah. appreciate you being able to explain that a little bit to us because yeah there's sometimes where well I, I mean there's even a couple specialized knives that are getting pushed out really really hard right now and they are they're super good quality but at the same time it's like man do i want to drop two hundred dollars on something that i'm only going to use for 
a couple months out of the year, it's a really, yeah. really tough sell. Yeah. I, and I would say it's worth it, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't, I, I don't blame people for not making that move, but. So we, we, we've got to the point now where we're like, all right, we got our bone and knife. We're making sure that it's absolutely sharp. And you said you use all three methods, whether it be stone, wheel, or whatever you're, you're or excuse me, not wheel, but um, like a, a machine that sharpens it up, whatever you're using. Um, what, what kind of critters are up there in Alberta that you're, you're taking apart? In my mind, like moose are as plentiful as whitetail that are down here yeah. in Michigan. Give me the landscape. Give me the, the habitat that's up there in, in Alberta. Yeah, so Alberta, I'm, I would go to venture to say that it offers quite possibly some of the best hunting variety on the planet, most definitely possibly in North America. Uh, we, you know, on our big game scale, it ranges from pronghorn antelope to mountain goat, bighorn sheep, moose, elk, bear. I mean, everything on that on that rocky spectrum that you could imagine, or including including pronghorn antelope, we got a great season for that here too. Um, and uh, as far as the Shangri La of critters, I would say that would that would go to elk hunting here. Like elk hunting in Alberta is is just incredible because there's so many varieties of landscape in Alberta, you know, up in the North, it's almost tundra based, very brush like and elk can be up in that, in that field, uh, in that climate. And they could also be in the Rocky mountains. Then they could be in the prairies, uh, of, of Eastern Alberta and, and Southern Southeastern that border Montana. So different landscape there, mule deer hunting in the coolies, big coolies, river valleys, um, bear hunting in the mountains, uh, sheep hunting as well as is super, super highly esteemed in Canada, and most definitely, uh, most definitely the moose hunting. We got two species that I'm aware of. I'm not a wildlife uh, biologist, but we got the the I believe they're called Chandra Chandra moose. I might have that all wrong, but they're a larger breed up in the up in northern Alberta. They kind of catch genetics from the Yukon moose. Uh, that you see those big, big, big old boys. So yeah. those are a lot of fun, but moose are plentiful. We have so many here uh, and, and they're kind of like elk. You'll find them in the alpines of mountains. You'll find them in the coolie river valleys. You'll find them on the prairies. So again, it's, it's super exciting because hunting never gets, it never gets old here. You can change your scenery every year of what you're going after. Oh, that's cool. The the moose is my bucket lister. It's I, it's one <laughs> of the few species that I'm definitely like that one. I have to make it work. I don't know. Maybe it's it's like the size. It's the mystique. And I mean, the moose yeah. is it's here in Michigan, but it's in numbers yeah. that we can't. It's not a population we can hunt yet, or I don't think it's what it would aspire to right now. It's it's very low. It's more or less we want to we just want to keep them around. But it's even on our For state sure. flag, and there's just something about. You know, I, I did do a trip up to northern Minnesota, up into the um, yeah. the backwaters, the uh, the canoe area. 
and yeah. you as our on our way out we'd go by these fishing shacks and there'd be like a moose uh skull with the with the antlers pitched above the doors and it was just like I just saw that and I just loved that image so and I mean at the same time a shank yeah. that's the size of my thigh like that's got to be so stinking good to be able to slice that up <laughs> yeah. for Asobuco or something man that's got to be good totally totally it's the same with the elk similar thing and it's funny you say that about the, the image of the skull with antlers above the door it's that's very very customary here <laughs> i mean if you go for a drive right outside the city it's it's almost the standard the standard design feature to yeah. have yeah. i tell you nature uh, nature knows beauty and you know it's oh, yeah. it's hard to improve on it and it's like well heck i'm just gonna put that above my door and that's just a beautiful centerpiece there Oh yeah, I got a nice big elk head in my dining room. Uh, just a Euro mount, so just the skull and antlers. But it's just, oh, it just fits the space beautifully. I just, it's the nicest thing in my house next to my cutting board. <laughs> <laughs> I got a good story about a cutting board here in a minute. Um, oh, but your favorite it. critter to chase up there? I'm, I'm feeling out that it's, it's probably elk. Is that your, uh, is that your favorite yeah. animal to chase? Well. To me, elk hunting in the rut is is not just my favorite critter to chase. It's just my favorite thing to do, period. Like, of anything, anything in my life that I do, I just get such a thrill out of it. It's just the adrenaline rush, the, the, the again, the discipline that you need to do it. And uh, the, the, just the, it's a, it's the ultimate thrill. Um, and I just get a kick out of it. It's the adrenaline rushes you get when those elk are amped up and bugling and charging you googly eyed and drooling and rushing at, you know, come look for a scrap. It's, oh, it's the best. So on the thrill aspect and, uh, that, that those two weeks in September is absolutely the best, but I'm not partial to really anything. I just love being outdoors and I love all the meat quite equally like I'm I don't really prefer one over the other uh moose hunting in the rut as well is 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 very very close to as exciting as elk it's not as switched on I would say as elk it's not as aggressive but it is very exciting as well I grew up moose hunting uh that was the way that was the thing to do and if you're a hunter in Canada or in Alberta specifically you're probably your, the origins of your hunting are probably focused more so around moose hunting than anything else because of how bountiful it is, right? You go out, you go out hunting for two weeks, you shoot a bull moose. Now you got 500, 600 pounds maybe of meat. And if you're a family, that's super resourceful. And so it makes most sense to put that effort with the only two weeks you might have off in vacation a year or allotted for hunting to go get what is most bountiful so i think by default that that becomes the most desired thing which usually um leads into late october early november and that can be very cold months here in alberta so for me when i started hunting on my own less with my uncles and cousins and whatnot that were primary moose hunters and just kind of really discovering the elk rut uh when i did it just it was just different. So I think I just prefer it a little bit more because it's different from what I just kind of grew up doing. So that's why I'm a little bit more attracted to that. 
but I do moose hunt. I shot a moose last year and you can't complain with the meat. So that's the main goal for me every year. Meat, 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 meat. I don't really care too much where it's coming from. So good deal. Good deal. I'm sure the, the phrase, the phrase is old. It's older than I am, but I've just grabbed onto it and it's, you can't eat the antlers that we're out there <laughs> for. Yeah. What's underneath that skin. Um, I'm not a rat guy anyway. I really, really enjoy the hips. So <laughs> if I'm going to make that yeah, correlation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd be both. So going with the meat on this, this here's another question then elk mm-hmm. versus moose, which tastes better? Uh, that's, well, that depends on the, the moose that you shot depends on the elk you shot, but if we're just speaking on generals, uh, general terms, general, generally moose resembles beef a little close, more closely. So you'll get a little bit more fat on moose. Um, not quite marbled at that point anyway. No, no, no. But just the general fat content, as in with the elk in September, you're just, there's going to be zero fat. Zero. I mean, I shot a white-tailed doe this year, and I shot a, my brother shot a bull elk, um, and the white-tailed doe has more fat on it than that bull elk did. That a little doe, yeah, a little doe had more fat on it than a bull elk did. I mean, in total, mass quantity-wise, not even just on like a percentage of weight size like total weight more fat <laughs> that's I crazy i see this every year and it just blows my mind even more like how is this possible but in september those elk are just their sole mission is to breed and fight they don't care about eating they don't care about drinking they just that their sole instinct is breed and fight and so they're just so deadly lean which makes them really good for that lean high nutrient dense meat but they're lean so it's different than moose that generally it's not nearly as lean there's a little bit more fat content in in general so it's kind of uh, you know it's just what you prefer that day i i don't i don't have preferences to really anything so i i i like them both equally well good deal yeah we've, we've spent some time on big game what what's it like for for small game up there in Alberta, um, buddy in Ontario, quite a bit east from from where you're at. Um, he raves about porcupine. That he says that is like a real sweet meat that he has. What what are the small critters that you guys are chasing up there? Yeah, porcupine's common. I myself haven't eaten it. Just I've never never shot one myself, so I've never. And I just I see one in the bush like most of the time when i'm in the bush i'm big game hunting so i have sometimes i'll see a rabbit and i'll think oh I'll, i'm gonna shoot that rabbit i'm gonna have rabbit for dinner but then i think no i'm hunting deer i don't want to blow my trip over uh, a little rat two pound rabbit doesn't right. make sense <laughs> <laughs> i think the same thing with uh with the uh, porcupine and it just hasn't really hit me like that as far as small game hunting like i know squirrel hunting's huge down in the states and parts of the states and uh all those small game critters but for me it's just the season is is always big game right september i'm hunting elk october i'm hunting moose november i'm hunting deer so it's like where do i fit a day for small game i I don't know i have to fill my takes pretty early there you go (laughs) so in, in general though we got a huge small game and 
uh, upline game birds and waterfowl. It's just, again, big diversity of that pheasants and woodchuck and then all those, you know, we got Canada geese, obviously, and teal and uh, regular lots of ducks and rabbits, multiple varieties of rabbits. And then we have a lot of fur bearing animals, lynx, bobcats, fisher, pine martens, wolverines, cougars. <laughs> we have the whole spectrum here and all of it's edible, all of it. So have I eaten everything? I, I have a good amount of those uh, animals on my, my checklist, but there's still a few that I need to get at and I, that I need to get my hands on. Just wanted to take a time out and say thank you to the listeners for tuning in. It really does mean a lot. I would also appreciate that if you haven't already left a rating or review, uh, to go ahead and do that. It all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game more. Feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on Facebook, The Huntivore, or Instagram, at Huntivore. Got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share? Or have some show topic ideas? Email us at Huntivore at gmail.com. For even more hunting and fishing podcasts by real, relatable sportsmen, head over to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, which happens to be a 2% for conservation company, who give 1% of their earnings and 1% of their time helping out the wildlife and wild places we all love. Now, back to the show. Yeah, well, that's good, because you're going to expand out. You know, you don't want to specialize. And I'm uh, I'm yeah. jumping into a post that you just had. And the image I loved because it's you looks like it appears to be in your kitchen and you're taking apart. Yeah. Um, is it a white tail or is it a pronghorn? That's it's definitely that, not elk. That's that. That's that fat white tail doe. Oh, no, that's that big doe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it, that's a, yeah. it's a lengthy it's a lengthy quote, but I'll paraphrase. Mm-hmm. And it said, a human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, uh, cooperate, act alone, uh, solve uh, solve, uh, solve equations, analyze new problem, pitch manure, plenty of that in my life, uh, (laughs) be able to fight efficiently, die gallantly. Specialization is for insects. And this was a quote from Robert Heinlein. Is that did I say that right? Yeah, Heinlein. Heinlein. Yeah, Heinlein. I believe. Gotcha. Yeah. And just being a, a DIY guy, that just really resonated with me with that that image and that quote being together. Uh because yeah, as a hunter and gatherer, I'm putting so much of that in my own hands that uh, you know, my small little tagline on this podcast is catch it, cut it, cook it that it's beginning to end of the whole thing that we're wrapping this package, that this is my lifestyle where I'm acquiring food and then being able to preserve it and utilize it. I just loved where this, uh, this quote came from. What inspired you to just make that post? That's a super underrated quote. Um, So I originally, the origin of that quote, I originally heard it uh, on from a, um, from a business, I don't know what his what his deal is nowadays, um, but he he runs he's a 
he's the CEO of a of a massive tech company. I don't know if he sold that tech company um, or, or what his deal is nowadays, but he does a lot of mentorship now. And his name's uh, Nav- Naval Ravikant. And I originally heard him say that quote on one of his little, um, he does these little short podcasts. They're like five minutes. Basically he makes a tweet and then he podcasts what that tweet relates to. Really cool. It's just kind of interesting stuff and it's easy listening. So I'll just turn on one of those. And I heard him drop that quote, but he didn't, I didn't catch the name of who quoted it. And I just knew that he was referring to business. You know, you can't and over specializing in one field and whatnot. And I just was like, Whoa, that applies across the board, anything in life flat out. And, and that just like resonated with me because I've always firmly believed in that as a, as a chef and as a cook because a lot of cooks get stuck in one way of doing things or one cuisine, one style of butchery, one style of, of saucier, one style of, of uh, making salad dressings. It doesn't matter that it's so applicable to cooking with people being very one dimensional. And I kind of got into this uh, thing a little back and forth with a friend of mine, probably two weeks ago when we were talking about who some of the best cooks are, uh, best chefs are out there and whatnot. And he was adamant about this one lady that's very exclusive, only in Italian cooking. And I said, man, it's literally impossible for her to be the best chef on the planet. She only knows that one field. And while she has an understanding for food and she could apply those principles across the board, she is she is specialized in one field that will forever limit her to expanding the ability of, of being able to do many things and, and being versatile and switching on the dime and being, being able to improvise and use this cut of beef or venison a different way than this cut. And, you know, I just found it super applicable. So I, I dropped that quote into that post because I just find a, a lot of, it's a call. I think it's a common skill that number one, most chefs should know that they don't. And I'm not trying to beg on chefs and stuff like that, but I think a lot of chefs don't know how to do. I was never really taught anywhere. I went, there was a part of culinary school that was basic butchery and whatnot. So I had, I went out, learned on my own for free from a butcher, helped the butcher to learn this skill just to be able to diversify so when I made that post and I was kind of thinking about what I should relate or what I should say, like, here's a picture of me taking off a deer's hind leg. Like what, what do you say about that? So I just thought, I love, I love that quote so much. And I think it applies very directly. And even it actually even references butchering a hog. You should just, everyone should just know how to do these fundamentals. And, you know, in this technology era that we live in, we're so far removed from some of the very basic things that we are as humans with our God-given abilities that we should be able to do. We're just so far removed from it. Some people can't even conceptualize being able to do it. Never mind not even knowing how to do it. They can't even imagine knowing how to do some things. And so I just thought it was like a good post. I thought the quote was just so accurate and uh, it can be applied probably to anyone reading that and, and uh, so I thought it would be a good one to to move along with. <laughs> it is surprising you just made that correlation that people should have a connection uh, 
more than just what they're doing. Like they excel in one area, but at the same time they can't even piece apart or take apart a, you know, a chicken, something that's, you know, so commonplace or at least like know where the breast lies versus the thigh in inside of the chicken. And so that's, it, it is a big disconnect. And so, yeah, just what you were saying there on being able to basically make yourself better by, I don't want to say surprising yourself, but at the same time, like widening your horizons and being able to work on the fly, have the pressure, but at the same time, be able to elevate something that's just mundane. Uh, exactly. That's going to be a amazing little transfer into, I can make comfort food. I can make asobuco, but can I make it look sexy? Can I up my presentation? Can I take something that I feed to my family on a normal day basis? Granted, I got a young family. I got three little boys. And, you know, you, it's kind of, I would say it's more of a trough. Like, even though I hand them a bowl or I hand them a plate, like, it's more or less I just toss it out there and we just hope that something gets eaten and maybe a fork is used. <laughs> you know, forget the napkin. Like, let's just hope that we use utensils. Um, yeah, but I'm now taking something that you know I've I've gathered it, I've I've killed it, I've processed it, and now I've cooked it, and I want to be able to now up my presentation. Listeners, mm-hmm. if you uh, you want to see some awesome looking dishes that you would be able to throw out um, for you know to give a try on your own, check out Shane's uh, handle here, and we'll we'll lay that out here for you in just a minute. But how plating is important in the idea that not only do you eat with your nose and your mouth, but you also eat with your eyes. And it's not necessarily a it it's something that you you're already presented with something. You're gonna you're gonna get salivating, you're gonna be excited for that meal, but at the same time to be able to add such an elegant beauty to a dish that you've been able to put those on your Instagram are just, you know, super cool. I know there's a bit of art to it. If we're going to break down that spectrum of art and science, like there, there's not necessarily a how-to, a one step one through three, four, five. But what is your process that you go through in saying, all right, I'm going to take this now from pot or bowl, pot or skillet, and it's going to go on the plate. Are, are you layering at this point? Are you you're trying to find things that work together? What would be the process that you're going through? Well, a lot of it now is, quite honestly, is just instinct and experience, I guess, just doing it over and over again over these years. But uh, my uh, first off, with now, nowadays in this, this age, there's so many resources that you, draw, you could draw inspiration from, right? You know, lots of great chefs and home cooks and just good, good pages to follow on Instagram that give even myself, like, definitely myself inspiration to, to plate things up certain ways and just, just to get creative with. And I, it's not like I ever copy anyone. I don't ever think I go out intentionally copying anyone in any way, but I just draw inspiration. I just go, ah, maybe I will make shanks today because I saw somebody else do it. And then I put my own spin on it. So when it comes to plating, like if I'm just plating something and I just want to for photography or just to have some guests coming over. So I want to make it look super attractive, which I do whenever I have guests come over. Um, I tried to, I guess I tried to 
visualize first off, like what will make this look good. So I always think like contrast in colors, contrast in textures. So I'll just use one of my posts recently to give you like a better frame of reference. Um, I did a venison gravlax. So I took a, a venison loin that I did and I cured it uh, just in some salt and sugar and blossom water and some spices. And then I just sliced it super thin, like a carpaccio, which is just basically raw beef and uh, like a tartare almost, but slices of beef. And then I thought, okay, so I got this base on my plate, this little circle of sliced venison loin. What can I do to contrast colors and textures on this plate? So I think of something kind of crunchy. Okay, what can I do crunchy here? I got some fennel in the fridge, so I'll pickle it to give it a nice little crack, like a little bit of a crunch to contrast the almost, uh, I guess, uh, prosciutto-like texture of the venison at this point. It's kind of got that texture, so it kind of gives it contrast. And then I think flavor contrast as well. And a big thing is, is color. So, you know, it's a very red dish. So I asked, I add a contrasting thing, like something yellow, like bee pollen, but that's like, that's very, that's very extravagant. You don't need to do that. Sometimes it's just simply about like this uh, curry I made the other day It's just separating your rice and your curry and right down the middle, divided between two, two parts of the plate and use that contrast and color the white basmati rice and then the nice yellow brown curry and then some squash in there that just offers variety of colors you know i drizzled some yogurt the yogurt again creates another level of contrast and the visual aspect i plate it in a bowl so it, it it piles higher rather than in a plate where it would just drip down and get all flat and then infiltrate the rice and then you have rice running away on the plate so i put it in a bowl where it's nice compact and tight or if I do something where I want some height and volume, I put it in on, um, I'll plate it on a base of something sturdy. So I'll use like polenta or couscous or something that can hold the structure of what I'm doing. And then I'll, instead of adding a stick of carrots in, in the mix, that would, <clears throat> that would uh, <clears throat> break down the structure of the couscous and have the whole dish fall apart I'll dice them finely the same size kind of as the couscous so that it, it blends in there nice and then it now you got white couscous color or yellowish color with the orange contrast of the carrot you know it's just and a lot of it's just like I said it's looking through Instagrams or recipe books and just seeing what others are doing and then just kind of applying it putting your own little twist on it I know it's easier said than done but <laughs> but here's here's the thing there's no rules and if you have any like creative concept just do it and if you don't like it take it off the plate put it in it put it on a different plate maybe you got just a white plate uh that you use it on and you have a black plate in your uh, cupboard put it on a different color maybe it looks different but the there's no general rule like you want to use use up the space of the plate use as you'll probably notice most of my dishes are quite center focus on the plate rather than super sporadic or I don't really plate on the left side or the right side just generally for the type of dishes that I make I always plate in the center but that's a good tip as well like plate from the middle and then expand from that gotcha I liked how you you it really explained how you're you're painting a picture here and you're 
as much as you want to not necessarily be a French impressionist where the colors blend and you want this this coming together, you want things to be sharp and cut as far as right. contrast. So that Carpaccio, I actually, you just got a like on uh, on that post because I was looking at it as you were talking about it. Um, <laughs> that you said like, yeah, that bright red and then for like a dark element you added, it looks like some either junipers or blueberries. I can't can't quite tell blueberries Blueberries, and just stuck those on there and those blueberries that dark uh like that dark deep blue just makes that red pop and then it looks like you have some like white shaved onions on there or if that's a a cheese i'm not sure that's the fennel that's That's the fennel fennel. okay yep but that white then plays with that and that red just comes right off that plate and you know i it's my my screen here, so I can't take a bite of it, but it's definitely super appetizing just as a visual. And yeah. And I, yeah, again, you're not going to do this on a Tuesday meal. You're throwing it out. You know, again, we're just feeding the masses here, you know, <laughs> like throw yeah. good to yep. put the calories in. Everybody needs to bath. Go, go to bed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like on a, on a Saturday night or on a Sunday night that, you know, you're having people over or it's, you know, yeah, we want to make something fun for the family. I want to make the boys go, ooh, ah, and I, you know, I want to impress the wife, like taking things from bland and mixed together and be able to make contrast. So I think that's probably yeah. going to be my biggest takeaway tonight is going to be like when I'm plating, uh, like I said, you know, layers and height and, you know, think of the shape, but I'm going to pull away specifically the contrast of that, that pick, yeah. pick that piece that I want to pop and now make that make that pop even more you know it's a good a good uh, if you're if anyone here is listening and they go check out my page one that i will i will reference people to check out is the elk shank that i just did it's probably you know i don't know like seven posts down or something like that you'll you'll know which one i'm talking about but also there's beauty and simplicity right you don't have to get crazy you don't have to do weird things you don't have to try to be re- reinvent the, the wheel or anything like that that dish is probably my mo- my most liked, most viewed dish, and like several hundred likes. I think it's probably like 300, 400 likes on it now. And it's ash potato, a beautifully cooked elk shank, and some fried sage leaves on it. That's it. And it's just that just very well done, very eye catching. But it's nothing special. Just mashed potato, a nice glazed shank, and a contrast with the fried sage leaves. But it just it just catches your eye, right? And it, oh, yeah. it really gets you excited to eat it. I think the the matte finish of like the potato <laughs> mixed with the glossy. I mean, I feel like I'm looking at like the side of like this awesome looking sports car here at this point. But it's like the glossy <laughs> shank paired with the matte finish of the potato. Like, man, that just looks that just looks super cool. Yeah, yeah. I was and that one tasted better than it looked too. I tell you that much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Shane, this has been an awesome talk. We have come to the crescendo of my show. And this is the two dish breakdown where I'm going to present you with uh, two opportunities to just kind of uh, basically not be specialized. I'm going to put you on the seat a little bit. And the first dish that I'm going to throw out to you is your favorite game species that you would use in a stew. It's getting colder here in November. 
a stew is going to be something that is going to be sounding really good, whether it be from the crock pot, Dutch oven, or just made made on the spot. What's your favorite game species that you use as a stew? And then break down what cut, like basically lay out that stew. How are you putting that together and what's going in it? I'm so happy you brought this up because it's like my favorite thing to <laughs> to do and to eat. So my my go-to is uh, elk neck or the chuck roast. I, you could kind of, it is a bit, it's kind of, it's two different parts, but similar, similar parts. The chuck roast generally starts at the end of the rib ribeye, I believe it is, or the rib roast, mm-hmm. and it goes up into the, the neck, uh, the beginning part of the neck, and then it uh, it breaks off. So I like that chuck roast, but I like the whole way up to the neck, to the base of the skull. I'll use that as one big roast. It's probably, uh, I'll cut it into two primary roasts, but each, each side's probably five pounds. So it's a good size, and it's loaded with connective tissue and collagen. Now, if there's one big tip in this big, in this podcast right now, when you're cooking stews or pot roasts or things like that with game, you have to use these cuts for that. You can't use your like inside rounds or your regular round roast because of how lean they are. You want the working muscles on this at point. You want those working muscles. You need that collagen to break down to basically kind of weird word to use but to lubricate and and induce all that flavor and and give it almost that fat well it is primarily fat fattiness uh and moisture to your your stew and your braise and uh so that is my primary cut my primary species would be elk and i say elk because i just find you get two great roast size out of out of that one neck roast so you'll get basically half and half and you'll get two great roasts that you could do a good dinner with and whatnot so i find it just super perfect for a lot of the types of things that i do and uh and how i do my stews uh is generally the same process i just change out ingredients here and there so i'll have a main broth that I braise in. That's the primary braising liquid. I have a concentrated broth or a concentrated flavor that I I use to deglaze all the fond, which is the browned up bits in the bottom of the pot. After you sear the neck and you you cook off some vegetables and whatnot, you got to deglaze that off the bottom of the pan. That's ultra concentrated flavor. A lot of the times people just scrape it out to prevent it from burning. That's when you want to use that red wine to deglaze and scrape that off and let that concentrated flavor that's been cooking at the bottom of the pot to add more flavor to your, your reduction or your, to your, your, uh, your concentrated flavor. That's what I'll call it. The gotcha. concentrated flavor. Are you using, so are you using a wine as well? Or are you going to like a brandy or something? Well, okay. I'll do this. This is what I like to do. This is a little bit unusual, but I'll do something like this. I'll use uh, some miso paste which is fermented uh, soybeans that have been fermented for X amount of time. And then it's super, super popular in, you know, uh, Japanese cooking. Um, But it's, it's loaded with umami flavors and umami is actually your sixth palate sense. So sweet, salty, bitter, sour. Uh, What what else am I missing there? 
and then umami. Sorry, fifth, not sixth, not fifth. And then umami. <laughs> umami is a real uh, palate sense. It's real. It's not just a made-up thing that I'm making up right now. It is a real thing. So beyond those four standard flavor profiles that we taste, we also taste umami. And umami is food, basically foods that are ultra-concentrated in glutamic acid, which is basically a, a, a concentrated version of amino acids, uh, very popular in foods like Parmesan cheese or anchovies or um, miso is very popular. Soy sauce is very popular with like that umami flavor. So I use miso, a little bit of soy sauce, a little bit of honey, and Worcestershire sauce, or I think that's how you call it. <laughs> I don't think that? there's actually a correct pronunciation. We just we no, just know, know what it is. <laughs> I, we all know what I'm talking about. And then I create this little paste and liquid from it. So I just take a, I uh, won't give you the exact recipe right now. I'll take, so I make a, a deglazing liquid out of that. And then I cook off my vegetables. So again, the vegetables, I, I call the, I don't just call it vegetables. I call it the aromatic base. So your aromatic base can be any vegetable you like, any uh, spices and, her, and herbs that you like. So I'm sweating off my aromatic base. It's going to be onions fennel, carrots. I'm going to use garlic, thyme, some fresh thyme, some, uh, some fennel seed, some, a couple juniper berries, throw a clove in there, clove spice. That's what I'm going to sweat it out in. Then I'm going to deglaze it with my miso sauce. That's going to deglaze and concentrate it. I'm going to cook that out a little bit. Let that reduce in volume by half its volume of liquid. And then I'll add my braising liquid. And for my braising liquid, we're going to do half chicken stock, half game stock from the bones that I've made from the elk, of course. And then I'm going to put it in the Dutch oven, slightly vent a lid, just slightly ajar, just enough for the steam to escape. The reason why we do that is so that the liquid can reduce while it's slowly cooking in the oven, giving us that nice glossy sauce that you see me post on that elk shank, that nice glossy color because while it's cooking in the oven, it's had the steam is evaporating, concentrating that into a nice, rich, super rich sauce. So we're going to cook it for about four hours at 350 degrees Fahrenheit. We're going to take it out the oven. That neck is falling apart. We're going to strain out the liquid and discard all the vegetables. We're going to put that liquid in a separate pot we're going to let it reduce a little bit, but in the meantime, we're going to shred up that, nel- uh, that uh, neck roast. We could use our fingers. We could use some forks, whatever. Just get a, You don't want to turn it too stringy. You know you want some big chunks in there. And then we're going to fold it back into that nice, beautiful sauce, and we're going to serve that on a bed of creamy polenta. That's, that's what we're eating. That's the final meal. That's and awesome. Everyone's happy. Oh man! There you go. <laughs> I like the the attention to detail. Now, there's going to be some folks out there that are like, "Listen, can I just put this in the crock pot and call it good?" Like, yeah, that yeah, that'll work. But just like <laughs> with your, you know, with your craftsman tool set, or you know, my five dollar thrift shop knife that I like the the shape of it, it will do the job. But oh. what we're talking right here, what you just elevated to, is 
like the two hundred, three hundred dollar dish that yeah, we're we can make a stew in a crock pot and not do anything to it. But the attention to detail that you just gave is like if you know what you if you know that you want something impressive, that that is how you make simple stew impressive. Well, that's that's just it. And again, this doesn't need to be complicated. I'm gonna recap that quickly using very basic ingredients. Okay. It's just so people can understand how easy this can be. All right, you ready? This is how easy it is. I'm ready. Here we we're go. Gonna sear, we're going to sear off the neck roast, okay? We're going to take it out of the pan. We're going to throw in some onions, some carrots, some celery. Just sweat it out quickly, okay? You could put a little tomato paste in there to give it a little bit of extra tomato-y flavor. Let that cook for another two minutes. All right, we're going to take uh, half a bottle of red wine. All right, dump that red wine in there. Perfect. We're going to cook it down by half its volume to concentrate that red red wine, right? Not too difficult. We all understand what's going on here. You bet. Boom. Okay, it's cooked down by half. Put that neck back into the the pot. Any type of pot it could be just a regular stew pot. Doesn't need to be an induction oven. It just needs to fit all these ingredients. Okay. Now you're going to add um, about two cups of chicken stock. Don't make it. Don't worry about making it. Buy low-sodium chicken stock. That's all I'm asking you to do. Just buy the low-sodium one. Don't buy added sodium, okay? Any kind. Just uh, just from Campbell's, Campbell's chicken stock, low-sodium. All right, we got that two cups added in there. Great. Throw it in the oven. Just leave that lid slightly vented. Perfect. It's been about four hours. We're done. Take it out the stove. Take that neck out. All right, strain off that liquid through a little strainer. Reduce it down until it's like a sauce. If it's still a little bit loose, you can make a cornstarch slurry, so a tablespoon of cornstarch, a little sprinkle of water until it's a paste. Add it to your liquid. Bring it to a boil. It'll thicken up. There you go. Add your neck back into that, that braise. That's all you got. There you go. Michelin star meal, super easy. I love it. I love but it. My point, my point is it doesn't need to be like I gave the big rundown of how it's, you know, miso and all these crazy ingredients but it doesn't need to be that to be as good that's just what i'm gonna do that day and then once you understand the concept you could change it however you want next time instead of red wine you're using brandy and instead of uh you know tomato paste you're gonna add this you, you, there's no rules do what makes you happy <laughs> <laughs> well good deal good deal the last one is it we're gonna you know you gave the right amount of details especially for this next dish that we're, we're reaching out that you right now we're going to be a fly on the wall and you're on a date night with your wife and you're cooking inside did does she is she a wild game eater yeah yeah she'll eat whatever good I put deal. in front of her hey for the most part. good on her good on her yeah 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 so you're doing a date night and you're cooking inside Kids are off. They're they're someplace else. Dog's been put away. You're you're looking for this date to just go just right. What are you making? And it's I'm I'm opening the door to any species. Uh, so it doesn't have to be just elk. Doesn't have to be uh, just waterfowl. Doesn't have to be just you. You get the the full spread of where you'd like to go with this. But what is going to be that date night meal? And don't leave out any of the details as far as the meal goes. All right. So we'll start out um, something we both, and I'm going to speak on my, because what my wife and I really like to eat. So we're both, we both love pasta. 
and I make pasta like I have a disease. I make it all the time, <laughs> all the time, and I make it different every single time. So uh, I'll make I'll make a raviolo. So a big singular raviolo is is like a ravioli, but a big disc. Okay, so I was just gonna, gonna ask, like, whoa, wait, wait, I thought it was ravioli. Whoa. Do they say it different up there in Canada? <laughs> <laughs> but no, a raviolo is something completely different. Yeah, it's basically you just get one, one big monster ravioli on your plate. Oh, okay, gotcha. Right? Gotcha. And so I'll do that one. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a filling out of white-tailed deer shank. I'll use the shank of the white-tailed deer because I like I like the size of the shank and uh, it'll it'll give me a good abundance of of good shreddable meat that I can use as a filling. So I'm going to use the shank. I'm going to braise it down similar to how I described with the neck roast. Just change out some of the primary ingredients. I'll, I'll use, I'll use red wine to cook that one. Some red wine braised white tailed deer shanks. And I'm going to incorporate that filling with shiitake mushrooms, lots of fresh thyme, some black pepper, some chilies to give it a little bit of a a little bit of a snap, not, not too much heat, but just a good, good thing. Um, and I might even, I might even use some mascarpone cheese as a binder, right. As a filling binder. And then I'm, this is the appetizer. This is the appetizer. And then we're going to cook that off, which is boil it some fresh pasta, right? It's just nice and fresh. So only a couple minutes. And then I'm going to finish it in a pan with some brown butter, some lemon, because that filling is ultra rich. I need that lemon juice, fresh lemon juice to help cut that richness of that and the brown butter, maybe some toasted hazelnuts or actually no hazelnuts. We're going to use oats. I'm going to make like a, a like a muesli style, like a savory oatmeal, like what you'd have for breakfast. So maybe I'll, roast some oats with some, some, uh, some raisins. Yeah, we'll do almonds. We'll put some almonds in there or, uh, yeah, some almonds in there and then make a little sauce of that. Some fresh herbs, grated Parmesan cheese on it. Right. That's how it's, that's how it's starting. That's the beginning of the night. Man, you know you're and on we'll fire on. when we're on appetizer alone, and I've already got three notes that I'm like, make savory oatmeal. That's my. <laughs> I'm already like, oh, that sounds awesome. Oh yeah, man. That's so raviolo on this this uh, savory oatmeal, and that's just the appetizer, yeah. and that's white tail oh, shank yeah. that you were going with that. Yep, that's what we're using there. All right, the ultimate, the ultimate ravioli or any type of pasta has a filling a shank is the perfect meat to use it really works well um and then for the entree we'll we'll man hmm. we'll stick we'll stick with the venice the the deer the white-tailed deer thing we're going to use that that whole deer up we're going to use uh we'll go with the um we're going to do a bone-in rack of venison so the rack of venison like t- tomahawk style. There you go. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sous vide it. Well, do we know what sous vide cooking is? We do. We that? are. We're good. The water bath <laughs> okay. technology. Are you using a wand, That's or right. do you have like a full immersion vessel that you're using? Just out of curiosity. Oh yeah. 
I, I have a, I have, I have a few immersion uh, circulators. So I have, I have like the wand, uh, the typical like circulator wand that screws to the side of the pot. The brand I use is Anova. Uh, people are looking afterwards. Yes, perfect. That's, good. that's my Christmas. Gonna... That's right there. I've already asked for it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. They make a few great lines too. Like they make a very a small little compact one. Then they make a professional series. Uh, there's a mid grade one. I think that's the one everyone should just buy if you're just using it casually. Um, and it's super awesome. Bluetooth. Like a lot of all the temperatures are already preloaded into your phone. So into the app. So you don't have to be like what is the right temperature and time for this? It's already there. You don't have to have that, that type of knowledge that took many of us years to, to generate. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's what I would advise. So I'm going to sous vide this, this loin uh, at 129 degrees Fahrenheit for four hours. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to crust it with some roasted garlic, a bunch of fresh herbs. We'll go, uh, parsley, we're going to go tarragon and thyme, rosemary, lots of Parmesan cheese, some lemon zest. And then I'm just going to give it a high, high roast in the oven. I'm going to use my oven. You could, you could use a high temperature on your Traeger or a smoker or, um, any other pellet grill or anything like that, but I'm just going to use my oven. I like, I like the hard roast I could get with my oven. So just max temperature probably five minutes to get that crust nice and baked onto there. And then I'll probably uh, do a risotto. My wife loves risotto. The risotto that we, that we make is, is really tasty, which is an Italian rice dish. So I'll do that one with um, the time of year we at, we're at fall. So I'm going to use some squash. I've been really big in the squash and, and squash and deer meat is that it, an incredible combination. Um, and this is a th- always thing, a thing to think about of like game and flavor combinations. You got to think about what these animals eat. And generally if that's what they eat. That's what they'll pair well with. So sage, the mule deer in, in Alberta eat sage. So that's a great combination. And you got to be careful with it, that you don't overuse it, but lots of deer like to eat squash. If there's squash that have hit the ground, they're, they're munching that up or fruit like apples and these kinds of things. Um, and then grains like barley and wheat and peas uh, that might be in the field peas. They love that kind of stuff. So I always say to people like, what do the animals eat? That's use ingredients that they like to eat that that will pair well with. So I'll do a butter, I'll do a acorn squash risotto and we'll have that with some truffle oil maybe or actually no truffle oil we'll do some freshly grated black truffles and um and that's how we're gonna kick that off super simple but we both really really like uh i save i save those racks all year long basically to like the prior week before the next season opens just to (laughs) just to hang on to them i don't want to go through them too quickly so exactly uh, i don't like to do anything too crazy i just like to do that nice herb crust roasted nothing nothing over the top risotto goes well with it's comforting and we're both madly in love after that oh man just the description that you've been giving and yeah like there's some (laughs) elevated points in here but just how you treated that and the thought that went behind it and i love the i mean it was like you were calling an audible 
as well as you're going like, no, we're going to do, no, no, wait, 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 time out. We're, we're not going to use the truffle oil. We're going straight up truffle. Like it's, as you're going through, like I, I almost see you walking through your kitchen and just like pulling out ingredients. It, it's not necessary. I mean, you're, you're playing with it, but at the same time, you've already got the science behind it. You've already got your steps. And now it's like where you can express yourself out. And yeah, you just had this incredible meal that you've put together. And depending on what the feel of it, you were thinking, oh, it's oh, what, is, what season is it? Autumn. Oh, yep. We're going squash. Like that was just a you know great way. I think that's a lot of things that sometimes you, you alluded to this as well. We get regimented. We make one good thing and there's nothing wrong with, hey, I make a really good X dish. I make a really good uh, asobuco. And if I want to keep making that a hundred times over, I can, but at the same time, give myself the, you know, give myself the flexibility to say, you know what, I'm going to change this up and not use this ingredient, but go this different direction. Right. That's, uh, that's what cooking is. Uh, just understand the, the very fundamentals and the basics. And that's really what I'm just trying to offer with my, my page. You know, if I'm, if anything, if I could, help people with is just kind of point in the right direction and then just use your own uh, intuition and, and um, to, to get there. I know it's easier said than done because there is a bit of a, you need to have that a little bit of a, a general skill set. But, you know, if you just explore that and, and if you, if you're one of the people that are already have a very basic understanding, you could run away with it. You just need to just start doing it, just start trying things and, it's really, I realized over the years, I realized one thing. It's really hard to mess up. Like, you've got to be some special type of bad cook to mess up. <laughs> like, so bad where you can't eat it. Like, you've got to be bad. Like, the food is forgiving. It's not going to do you wrong if you just, like, add a little bit of this spice and then you try it and it doesn't taste great. And it's still going to be edible, but you just realize, oh, maybe next time – Smoked paprika doesn't go great with trout. There you, you, know? there you go. And I don't, I don't even, I've never even done that. I, I'm allergic to fish actually. So, but oh, let's man. just say like, like that, that is uh, like, you just realize that. And then next time you just don't ask smoked paprika and you realize, oh, that, that didn't work, but maybe this will. But because it didn't work, you realize something else worked. Do you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And that happens a lot with food most food discoveries are accidental. So there, you don't have to be, yeah, you don't have to know, think you know everything or I'm still learning to this day, like nonstop. So yeah, people need to have fun, especially hunters. Like that's my passion point, especially right now. Like not that I'm part of all these hunting groups and all this stuff on Facebook and Instagram and friend groups. And then people start posting their food of, some backstraps that are cooked to pieces and I'm just in tears and I'm like, it doesn't need, you probably put more effort into doing that than trying to make it nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to prevent these travesties that are happening. happening. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Doing it from uh, the couch, just like you're yelling at the flames. Yeah. You're yelling at these, hey. uh, these hunters that are trying to be chefs. As I sit on the couch right now, you see, this is how it happened. This is how it happened, Nick. This is why we're here today. Well, Shane, this uh, has been an awesome. This has been an hour and a half. We've just, I mean, the time has gone by, and this has been a great chat. Um, 
where where can my where can my listeners find you? Yeah, we've we've talked a lot about Instagram here. Is that is that where we can uh, best find and uh, communicate with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my Instagram handle is at the Couch Cook, and um, yeah, that's basically the main platform that I'm using. I do have a Facebook page as well, but it's just copy and paste of what I'm doing through Instagram. So that's my main source uh, right now. I don't have, like I said, I don't have too many uh, intentions of doing anything crazy, but if you guys want to find me there, ask me, I love it when people ask me questions. It's a huge point of motivation and inspiration for me. So uh, I, I would love it if, if people just basic questions and, and just ask for my advice and things like that. And I, Cause usually I'm also learning. It's been, I realized that too, like a lot of these very simple questions. Sometimes I have to go, Oh yeah, let me, let me look into that. And uh, I like that. So I encourage everyone to fire away. Beautiful. Well, Shane, hold on for just a second here. I'm going to send our, our folks on out folks. This has been a super rich episode Mainly, I mean, just the ingredients that we talked about, just the technique that was added. This is definitely worth going back, rewinding, and maybe writing down a couple things that you're going to add to your repertoire. As we go forward as hunters, and we then are presented with our venison, like we we have certain dishes with, that we love, but let's not get so specialized. Let's not go set in our regiment that we only use this cut for this purpose. If we've got a dish that we love, how can we elevate it? How can we present it a little better? So there's just some great food for thought from this episode. And even though you may be using a super expensive knife, or even like myself, a $5 thrift shop find that maybe I need to then upgrade from now on, but it doesn't matter if it's the $200 knife or the $5 knife, make sure that sucker is always 